0: From VOA, Press Conference USA, here is your host,
1: Carol Castillo. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our special guest on this edition of the program is Congresswoman Elaine Luria, a Democrat from the state of Virginia, and she is serving her second term in office. Elaine Luria is the vice chair of the House of Representatives Armed Services Committee and serves on the Veterans Affairs Committee and the Homeland Security Committee. She was also chosen to be a member of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Prior to her election in 2018, Congresswoman Luria served for 20 years in the Navy, retiring at the rank of commander. She served at sea on no fewer than six ships as a nuclear-trained surface warfare officer deployed to the Middle East and Western Pacific. She culminated her Navy career by commanding a combat-ready unit of 400 sailors. Her website bio goes on to say that Representative Loria was one of the first women in the Navy's nuclear power program and among the first women to serve the entirety of her career in combatant ships. Of all members of the House Democratic Caucus, she served the longest on active duty. In addition to her committee assignments, Congresswoman Luria is a member of the Bipartisan Task Force Combating Antisemitism, the Problem Solvers Caucus, and Gun Safety Task Force, among many others. We'll talk with Congresswoman Luria about numerous challenges, foreign and domestic, facing the Biden administration, including the current buildup of more than 100,000 Russian troops along Ukraine's border, the ramifications of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the rise in domestic terrorism in the form of anti-Semitic and white supremacist movements and militias here in the United States, and her work on the committee to investigate the violent insurrection on January 6th the attack on U.S. democracy. Well, we had the pleasure of interviewing then-candidate Luria when she first ran for office in 2017. We had the privilege of hosting her in our VOA studio. She was among a raft of female veterans and others with national security backgrounds who decided to run for office and translate their experience as lawmakers. So we are absolutely delighted to welcome her back as Congresswoman Elaine Luria, and she joins us via Microsoft Teams. Congresswoman, welcome back to the program.
0: Thanks for having me back.
1: We're so happy to have you in your position now as lawmaker. Let's start first with the significance and the purpose, Congresswoman Luria, of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. This attempt by a mob loyal to former President Trump to stop the peaceful and legitimate transfer of power and threaten the lives of lawmakers like yourself, including the presiding officer, former Vice President Pence, whose role, according to the Constitution, was to certify the electoral results from December 14, 2021. Talk about the significance of this particular committee, your role as well.
0: Well, Carol, you know, this has been a unique event in U.S. history in the sense that an insurrection, a group, a very large group of Americans showed up at the Capitol who really thought that the way to voice their political opinion and position was through violence and violently attacked the Capitol, overran the Capitol, resulted in multiple deaths and came very close to physically, you know, reaching the place where the vice president was at that time doing what would normally be a very routine event, which is to read the results of the election from each state, create a tally and announce the person who had been chosen through the most recent presidential election. And, you know, this was sort of the culmination of many things that have been happening over months that were really very publicly broadcast by the then former president about questioning the validity of the election, different plots that sought to, you know, talk about the absentee voting and voting machines and fraud and all of these different things. So the purpose of this committee is to find out what all those events were leading up to that day. Um, what happened on january 6th specifically and then we're a legislative committee so to present recommendations so that something like this can never happen again in our country and you know for our listeners overseas it's really important to note that the work of the committee within congress is very different than that that the justice department does they are the ones who are really undergoing probably the largest investigation in u.s history um, into criminal activity and you know their job is to hold accountable for example those people who violently attack police officers who trespassed at the Capitol. who tried to attempt to stop the proceedings within Congress. So, you know, our investigation is a legislative investigation, really to collect the facts, the information, present those to the American public and make recommendations so that we don't have another day like January 6th again in our history.
1: Well, that's very important for you to say, Elaine Luria. And just a quick follow-up, you know, notwithstanding Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's pushback against the Republican National Committee's recent statement saying that The rioters were actually exercising, quote, legitimate political discourse, unquote, and former Vice President Pence's public rebuke of former President Trump saying really out loud that Trump was wrong to think that he had the ability to overturn the election. Are you concerned about this rhetoric and sentiment? emanating from the Republican Party, saying that somehow this was legitimate political discourse, notwithstanding, as I said, you know, some people who are pushing back, such as Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. How concerned are you about this, this language?
0: Well, what I would say is that what we saw on January 6th was not the legitimate political discourse. There is no way that legitimate political discourse includes violence, which led to the deaths uh, of several people in the brutal attack of many police officers in an attempt to disrupt the functioning of our government. So, you know, I think it's very appropriate. And I applaud former Vice President Pence for being very clear and deliberate that the former president was wrong, that he did not have the ability under the Constitution to change the outcome of the election. Um, I am actually very pleased that Senate Minority Leader McConnell has come out and spoken against uh, what I think is really a ludicrous statement from the Republican National Committee. And, you know, it seems that there truly is a rift developing within the Republican Party itself. And I think that as we move forward, Republicans in office are going to have to make a choice. Are you Liz Cheney Republicans? Um, And, you know, really applaud her for her courage in coming forward um, and being a leader as the vice chair of this committee and standing with the law. So are you... Liz Cheney Republicans, the party of Ronald Reagan, John McCain, or are you going to continue to be Donald Trump Republicans, Donald Trump loyalists? And you know, I think that we need two very vibrant political parties within our country that aggressively debate differences in policy and may, you know, have different views on how we do what is best for the future of our country. And that's a, a healthy political system. But what happened on January 6th was not routine political discourse. And you know, I, I look for a day moving forward when we can return to two political parties that want to debate the facts. And policy and and not resort to violence.
1: The Republican National Committee has also called the Select Committee to investigate January 6 as somehow you know a Democratic ploy to take power or something. When, as you rightly said, there are two Republicans sitting on that committee: Vice Chair Liz Cheney from Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger from Illinois. Two Republicans who actually were recently censored by the RNC, again, in this attempt to delegitimize them and the committee, which is most unfortunate. One more question, then we'll go to another topic. What can you share with us about your top-level findings thus far? You have interviewed 475 witnesses, issued more than 100 subpoenas, including broad ones to banks and telecommunication and social media companies. What can you tell us about your findings thus far, and when will the public hearings begin, and what do you hope they will accomplish?
0: Well, as you said, we've heard from many people, hundreds of people, and many of those coming voluntarily to provide information to the committee because they too care about the future of our democracy and our government. And tens of thousands of pages of documents. And you know, we have learned a lot. We've investigated different areas, such as the rise of these violent extremism groups that were present at the Capitol on that day. One of the aspects of the investigation is to follow the money to determine, you know, a lot of fundraising and the funds that went into. Bringing Bringing people to Washington and hosting this large rally, both on the 5th and the 6th at the Ellipse and then at the Capitol. We are looking into what was the big plot? When did it start to try to delegitimize the election results? How long did that persist? Who was involved? It seems to me, as we learn more and more, that there was just truly a sense of desperation as those involved got closer to January 6th. And we're trying to understand how all of that plot, which much of was broadcast very publicly as it was happening. You know, turned into a violent mob that stormed the Capitol, and those are just some of the elements of the investigation. We're obviously looking at the response of the police and the National Guard. We're looking at, you know, our current laws and the Electoral Count Act, for example, and how that could potentially be strengthened in order to prevent being exploited potentially at some point in the future. So, bringing all of that information together to paint a very fulsome picture of everything that led up to January 6, the events of that day, and one real question for me is: there was about three hours, a hundred. 187 minutes between the time that the rioters broached the Capitol um, and the former president made a statement to the public to stop the violence and to go home. So that is one of the things in our investigation as well, to understand you know, what transpired during that time and why did it take so long for him to respond. You know, we're working very diligently, still have many people to interview, and I think that the public can expect to hear from us later this spring as far as public hearings, then followed by a report laying out the findings of the committee.
1: Well, thank you for that, and we'll look forward to seeing that. In a related issue, we have a domestic terror threat here in the United States writ large as we see anti-Semitic and racist attacks mount. How worried are you, Congresswoman Laurie, about the growth of militia movements like the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, so-called Three Percenters, all of whom participated in one way or another in that very insurrection about which we were talking on the Capitol, and to what extent did they continue to pose a threat to non-white minorities, blacks, Jews? You know, we're just seeing a record number of anti-Semitic attacks on synagogues, on historically black colleges. What can Congress do? Should we have stronger domestic terror laws, you know, akin to our laws against foreign terrorists? What are your thoughts on this topic?
0: Well, my first thought is I definitely agree, and the data shows that there's been a drastic rise in the number of these types of incidents, the number of anti-Semitic incidents, the bomb threats recently that we've seen against historically Black colleges, the assault on the the synagogue recently in Texas, and those types of things are popping up in the news just very regularly, and it's very concerning, um, as well as you mentioned what we call extremist groups that have grown in size and, and popularity and really visibility almost were legitimized in a certain way by the former president. And so that is very concerning. As you said earlier at the beginning of this, I do serve on the Homeland Security Committee. And I would say that that's something that we're looking very closely at. You know, how do you deal with issues of domestic terrorism? Something that is very sacred as Americans is First Amendment rights. And there is really a complicated issue, both for law enforcement activities, for example, to be aware of things that could be threats within the United States, but also to preserve the rights of American citizens for free speech. And so, you know, I think that that is something that we are learning as well as we investigate to get the January 6th events is that, you know, although there was much very publicly said on publicly available online about what some of these groups might have been planning to do and through social media, you know, sort of our law enforcement intelligence agencies were not keyed in on observing this in a way that really led to a threat assessment that reported and predicted and allowed law enforcement to prepare adequately for what was to come on January 6th. So, you know, it is something both in the committee work on Homeland Security as well as within the 160 select committee that is really a topic of discussion now of how we can best look for ways to prevent these types of incidents in the future.
1: We'll have more in just a moment, but first, you're listening to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. Our special guest is Congresswoman Elaine Luria, a Democrat from the state of Virginia. I'm Carol Castiel, and this is a reminder that our PCUSA podcast is available on our website at voanews.com. PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, Here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Chris Ote, a young lady from Lagos, Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. And let me remind you to tune in to our sister program, Encounter, where I talk with two Middle East experts, about the U.S. raid in northwestern Syria that resulted in the death of ISIS leader Haji Abdullah. President Joe Biden says the counterterrorism operation conducted with minimum civilian casualties removed a major terrorist threat to the world. Analysts Jennifer Kaffarella and Brian Katulis discuss the significance and ramifications of the raid and recommend a long-term strategy to curtail the allure and reach of this radical group as far away as South Asia and Africa. And now let's return to our very special guest, Congresswoman Elaine Luria. And now, Congresswoman, I would like to turn to voting rights legislation. What is your position and strategy regarding voting rights legislation going forward in light of the failure of the Senate to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to compensate really for the evisceration of the 1965 Voting Rights Act And we're seeing, you know, more and more rulings from the Supreme Court, which are very concerning, that seem to suppress vote of particularly minority groups. Is there still time to act in light of the recent failure of the Senate, part of which was due to the so-called filibuster rule? But what are your thoughts?
0: Well, I have supported in the House both this Congress and the previous session of Congress legislation that would reinforce the Voting Rights Act, that some of the protections of the Voting Rights Act had been whittled away by the Shelby versus Holder decision, and you know I think it's very important that we can continue to you know maintain the right of all Americans to have an opportunity to elect someone of their choice. So by passing in the House the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, I hope was that our colleagues in the Senate would also be able to pass this legislation and really be able to reinforce the Voting Rights Rights Act, which you know we think really helps minority communities across the country, communities of color, have the ability to have a representative of their choice. Um, as you mentioned, you know the debate over the filibuster really stalled this legislation. And then we saw some cases moving forward in the courts. I was actually, for a brief moment, very hopeful about a case in Alabama that was going to reinforce the Voting Rights Act and require the state to redraw its maps to include a second district that included a sizable minority population. But the Supreme Court essentially stopped that and told Alabama that they could go forward with a single district that covers a large swath of the state. And, you know, although the population in Alabama is about 28% African-American, 60% of those individuals live in this one congressional district. So it really, you know, on the surface appears to not allow a large portion of people in the state to have the opportunity to elect someone of their choice. And so I would say that, you know, legislatively in Congress, I mean, we will not stop the push. I don't know that there'll be any significant changes in the immediate near term with regards to the Senate. And there are ability to push this legislation forward, but it you know, it remains a top priority of mine and my colleagues, my Democratic colleagues in the House.
1: I'd like now to turn to foreign policy. Elaine Luria, certainly an expertise of yours, national security policy. Let's start with the recent U.S. raid and the killing of the ISIS leader in Syria. Now, of course, this was a good move, many analysts would say. And yet killing the leaders while necessary is not necessarily sufficient. Could you talk about what you think the United States should be doing to curtail the ideology which fuels, you know, the militant group, which continues to recruit more people, I suppose, because of political and economic conditions and spreading, you know, around the world to Africa, to South Asia. As I said, you know, the kinetic action, it may be important, but perhaps not sufficient.
0: Well, I agree that you know taking out a leader of an organization such as ISIS, which seeks to harm the United States and, and our allies around the world, is something that is helpful. But again, it doesn't achieve the long-term goals of rooting out all of the adherents to this group and having them reform and regroup and try to attack again. So I think that it does require persistent attention by the United States, our allies, coalition partners around the world, to make sure that we're not providing safe haven to these groups to operate within different countries. And as you mentioned um you know different conditions around the world sort of allow these types of groups to form, to grow. And in many places, there's a lot of times not necessarily other opportunity that is as attractive to young people, a lot of times young men, um, than to join these types of extremist groups. So I think that, you know, ways that we can work around the world to have just in general a betterment of opportunity for people around the world. And then also, you know, not specifically ISIS, but other terrorist groups, you know, there are bad actors in the world, such as Iran that has been, you know, funding different projects. groups conducting terrorist acts in many places. And I think that we need to stand against that. And I think that that's very important doing that with our allies such as Israel to make sure that we do not allow Iran's proxy organization, Hamas Hezbollah, to continue to attack the U.S. and its partners.
1: No question about it. I'd like to turn briefly now to Afghanistan. You know, the ramifications of the U.S. and coalition troop withdrawal. Many analysts have criticized the Biden administration's handling of our withdrawal, even as they perhaps applaud the fact that the United States has, you know, left the ground. But, of course, terrorist threats and a humanitarian disaster is unfolding, uh, a rollback on women's rights. There's famine in the country. You know, it's really heartbreaking. I'd like to get your take on what responsibility the United States has right now to somehow help, notwithstanding the Taliban, you know, having taken control.
0: Well, you know, as we watch really what is developing into humanitarian crisis, a food shortage, the lack of access to basic necessities like um, medicine and healthcare you know, that's very concerning that such a large population that really there have been advances in the freedom and lives of women and girls within the country, and those things are being rolled back. I think that, you know, the United States should play a key role with our partners in making sure that we can provide the humanitarian assistance, the basic needs to those people. It is a difficult situation with the Taliban and control to be able to reach those people most in need. So I think that we need to really be aggressive in finding ways and partners with whom we can work to get people Really, the basic necessities that they need. And, you know, as we mentioned in the previous discussion, you know, a place that could be harboring to terrorists and those who, you know, wish to do harm to the United States and our citizens is very concerning as well. So I think that the United States and our coalition partners, having left Afghanistan, has left a vacuum there where we really are going to have to find new ways to monitor and ensure that those who wish to harm us are not going to regroup and be able to launch attacks from there. And of course, now I'd like to turn to russia
1: ukraine and the u.s nato response congresswoman loria it appears that the united states has mounted a very intense and promising response by rallying our allies nato european Uh, Many have congratulated President Biden for this. But I'd like you to, to respond to our strategy. Have we adopted the right strategy? Of course, no one is going to basically ban Ukraine from its interest or desire to join NATO. And by the same token, it's not going to join anytime soon. It's far from meeting those criteria. So when President Vladimir Putin, Russian President Vladimir Putin, says this is a threat to him, it's hard to take that very seriously. Nonetheless, they are where they are. They have surrounded the country with troops, very threatening. They want to reinvade because, of course, we know that they invaded in 2014. They took Crimea, and there's still all kinds of unrest in eastern Ukraine. What is your reaction to the Biden administration's response?
0: Well, I think that it is very important that we continue to engage diplomatically and as you mentioned, with all of our partners specifically with NATO to hopefully achieve a different outcome to not result in an invasion, certainly not a full scale invasion, and certainly to provide a way if possible for Putin to back off without losing face so that you know we don't see you know a horrific invasion of Ukraine. It is a complex situation because, as you said, Ukraine is not a NATO member, but you know on the other, borders, the western borders of Ukraine, are many of our NATO allies, and I think it's very important that we stand closely and reinforce our alliance and support to our NATO allies. As we've seen, the United States is operating uh, aircraft carrier, the USS Harry S. Truman, in the Mediterranean with our partners. Just this week, I uh, was very encouraged to see the United States, the French, and the Italian aircraft carrier strike groups working in close unison to show our support and partnership within the region, and the United States obviously has forces within Europe and is providing some additional forces to show support and solidarity with our NATO allies. That said, um, you know, as not a NATO ally, the United States and our NATO partners, there's not a treaty obligation under Article 5 with NATO to physically come to the assistance of Ukraine. I think that the diplomatic measures that we're taking, that the French, the Germans and others are taking, are really our best hope and prospect moving forward, and it's very complex. It's complex because of the energy requirements and ties for the Europeans with the pipelines both that go through Ukraine and the Germans with the development and pending lighting off of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to provide them more energy at the same time that they've sunset their nuclear reactors and that availability of energy. So it's very complex in each of our NATO partners, different considerations within this. But the fact that we're working and continuing to work closely together in these negotiations makes me hopeful for an outcome that does not involve an invasion.
1: Indeed. And of course, many have criticized Germany in particular for not being more forthright about saying that you know, Nord Stream 2 would be off limits should there be an invasion. But Like you said, they have their own concerns, and it looks like at the end of the day, all the allies would come together. There is this one question about the sequencing of sanctions. I think some of Ukraine's leaders would like to see imposition of sanctions now. What is your take on that? Should some sanctions go into effect, or should we wait for an invasion or the start of an invasion by Russia to impose crippling economic sanctions like those export controls on critical sectors and banning of microelectronics? and other severe sanctions?
0: I think of sanctions is sort of a carrot and a stick, and the sanctions being the stick, essentially that there are severe consequences um, if Putin is to take an action such as invading Ukraine. And so I think that that leverage remains in the fact that we are closely aligned uh, with our NATO partners in the sanctions that will be applied, and that Putin will understand that if he does take this action, there are going to be severe consequences for Russia and the Russian people. And so I think that the position we're taking diplomatically to hold back on sanctions for the time being is appropriate, but it's a rapidly changing situation. So different things could develop that could require implementing some measure of sanctions as the negotiations proceed. Indeed. And a quick question on China, Congresswoman Loria,
1: the threat posed by China and now the apparent revived uh, Putin Xi rapprochement you know, in the wake of the uh, NATO and US unity against Russian aggression in Europe. I suppose at least some analysts are saying that it's all the more important that we all stay united, all the democracies, NATO, in order to also send a message to China. Because if it's aggressive actions in the South China Sea toward Taiwan, we have, of course, the AUKUS alliance and and the Quad. I believe Secretary Blinken now is in meetings. What is your take on the threat from China, how we are handling it?
0: Well, I would say that you know the number one uh, U.S. national security priority should be China. And I understand that there are a lot of things happening simultaneously in the world, but we cannot take our eye off of China. China's increased aggression and threats of invading Taiwan within a very short time frame are very concerning, and that should be our number one threat as the Vice Chair of the Armed Services Committee, you know, really been attempting to focus and shift our resources to ensure that we can have the preponderance of resources to the Navy and the Air Force to be able to provide a credible deterrent. With regards to China, and I also have called for a shift in the United States policy. I think that the policy of strategic ambiguity that we've held for decades is no longer sufficient. I think it needs to be very clear that the United States will react in order to maintain the status quo. If China were to attempt to take Taiwan by force, that the United States will react to come to the defense of Taiwan. I think that that's incredibly important and should inform our future defense policy, the posturing of our forces, how we invest our defense budget to build and maintain the Navy and the Air Force and other forces within the region. And you know our allies are participating very closely as well with us in the Pacific. We've seen reinforced commitments of mutual security assistance with the Philippines. The Japanese have very clearly come out and said that any aggression on Taiwan, they would also view as a self-defense issue. And as you mentioned with AUKUS, they're working very closely with the Australians, the Quad with India, Japan, Australia, and the United States. The British have deployed an aircraft carrier. We've done operations jointly with them this year and even just last week. Had a an exercise with two United States aircraft carrier strike groups along with the JMSDF, the Japanese Navy, and just our continued presence and alliance with our partners in the region and making sure that, you know, with everything else happening in the world that we maintain our focus very clearly on the threat from China is really my top priority. Well, Thank you for that. Elaine
1: Luria, as we close, I would like to come back to domestic politics, but everything domestic also has international ramifications as we know, as the uh, superpower in the world. Let's look at the midterm elections, election 2022. I'm assuming you're running. I'd like to know what you think is at stake. Can Democrats, in your view, prevail against the historic trends that, you know, the uh, party in power normally loses seats in the House of Representatives and even in the Senate? And given President Biden's current lower poll numbers, what are the chances, in your view, and what should the Democrats be doing perhaps to combat this historical trend and perhaps maintain at least one or two of the houses of Congress. I've heard analysts say, you know, Democrats should be talking about their successes, the incredible infrastructure bill, bipartisan infrastructure bill, perhaps a Build Back Better bill, maybe somehow cut back, but nonetheless, the COVID relief, the economy is strong, notwithstanding higher inflation. What is your message and what are your thoughts and prospects for the Democrats in 2022?
0: Well, you know, I think that going into 2022 midterm elections, there is a lot uh, that Democrats can talk about, specifically uh, the bipartisan infrastructure package, all of the work that was done to get us out of COVID to recover the economy quickly. Um, And I think that we're way redistricting um, after the most recent census is shaking out around the country that maybe the map is not quite as unfavorable as was previously forecast. So, you know, I can speak about um, my district, which is one of only a handful of swing districts that's very competitive across the country. I plan to talk about what we've delivered for infrastructure to come out of COVID and really reemphasize the difference, the stark difference between the two parties and what they mean to protecting our democracy moving forward with regards to the events that happened on January 6th. Um, And I also think that, you know, Democrats should lean in uh, really a lot more on the national defense issues and how important they are. And in a community like mine that um, is very heavily military, I think that it's really important to talk about the achievements there, the additional funds we've added uh, to this year's defense budget, and really what we're doing to make sure that we can stand up against uh, China and any potential aggression in the future.
1: Congresswoman Elaine Luria is a Democrat from the state of Virginia. Congresswoman Loria, thank you so much for your time and your terrific insights on so many important issues.
0: Thank you for having me again.
1: Press Conference USA on the Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on the Voice of America.